Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this episode, we sit down with Danny Ryan from the Ethereum Foundation to talk about Ethereum 2.0. We talk about what it is as well as what's happening with this spec. Today we have Danny Ryan on the show. Super excited to have you. I really want to dig into ETH2 and do a little bit of an update on what's going on. Um, we've had Prismatic Labs on before to talk about it a little bit and uh, excited to see what's been going on since we had them on and maybe talk a little bit about more general topics as well. So uh, we have Anna with us as usual. Hello, hello. And uh, Danny, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to dig into this stuff. I've been putting a lot of work in past six months, tightening all the specs. Um, so it's a good time to chat about it. Frederick, you know Danny, but I don't really know Danny. So maybe we should start off with a quick intro. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this space? Yes. Uh, my name is Danny Ryan. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I've actually, until like a week ago, resided in New Orleans. I'm out in Boulder now. I've been following Bitcoin for a long time, uh, maybe made some bad trades early on and, uh, kept my eye on Ethereum. Thought it was super fascinating. Um, the obsession took me, you know, over time, I realized it was the only thing that I could really think about. And, uh, the only thing I wanted to work on, I was an independent developer at the time and started getting rid of all my clients and started just following research and contributing online. Um, and probably at the beginning of 2018, I officially started working with the foundation, the Ethereum foundation and have been working on proof of stake specs and research. And that rolled into working on the ETH2 stuff when proof of stake and sharding, uh, all kind of came together. Something I'm really curious about is how you came to be in the position that you are now. Because like I, I know a lot of people like John Choi, who we had on the podcast before, kind of started as a researcher and then moved into various other roles. Like, what was your path within the foundation? Because you're, I mean, you're effectively like a project manager over ETH two, but as a communicator, as this sort of layer that that glues a bunch of things together. And in an organization like the EF that doesn't really have managers, like how does that come to be? Right. Uh, so I, I began to contribute just by like editing stuff online, like contributing to some proof of concept code bases. Um, and John Choi actually hired me to the EF. Finally, he's like, you're doing all this work, <laughs> like work with us. I said, okay, great. Um, and saw that there was a lot of work to do with the Casper stuff when it was still Casper contract and started just kind of taking that over naturally, uh, as I added some testing frameworks and was enhancing the code base. Um, when that work got deprecated, um, I did the deep dive on sharding research. Um, and really all throughout this, as I began to work with EF, um, it became apparent to me that research had at least a little bit of a communication problem in that, people would ask us questions and I would respond. And then I kept getting responses like, well, I'm just going to start asking you because you're the only one who responded. Um, <laughs> so for better or for worse, uh, I think we've greatly upped our communication, especially with respect to all the E2 stuff uh, in the past six to 12 months. Um, but it, it, you know, we have some like heavy hitting, like deep research going on in the EF and then we have also people that are like deep in the engineering. Um, and I have fascination on both. So I've, I'm often communicating with teams on both sides and it just emerged that somebody needed to really take on the communication. And so it, it was very organic. No one said, Hey, Danny, do this. It's just kind of, it happened. Very excited. It's a lot of fun. I get to talk, get to like talk with incredible, smart, uh, people from all over the space and all, all different sites of, all the different teams and sides of the project. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good spot to be in, in my opinion. So why don't we start off with just providing a little bit of context about what ETH 2.0 or ETH 2 
really is. Or serenity. Or serenity. <laughs> like, for example, we've seen ETH 1.x as a term thrown around, ETH 2.0. Maybe you can just share for the audience what the difference is exactly and what those two things are. So I guess start with ETH 1x. Uh, ETH 1x is an acknowledgement that we need, we have some work to do on mainnet to keep it alive, keep it stable, keep it viable. In the meantime, while we follow this more radical path of an upgrade and almost rewrite for uh, ETH 2.0. And so the, the ETH 2.0 is an acknowledgement that um, Ethereum is awesome. And Ethereum is also like an, a very early mover in this space. And so there's been a lot to learn and grow and a ton of research that's happened since then. Um, and ETH2 is us taking all of that research and insight and uh, radically re-architecting the system um, so that we can remain uh, a viable competitive blockchain in the coming decades. I've heard that ETH 1.x will eventually kind of become a shard in ETH 2.0. Is that still something that is on the roadmap? Is that? Yeah, there, I'd say this is still a research question and also just a question for the community in what we want to see happen here. I think the most palatable solution is to roll ETH 1 into ETH 2 at some point when we reach kind of stability on the ETH 2 front. There's two, two kind of paths you can imagine. One would that be that it becomes a shard on its own. Uh, but having an exceptional shard that has its own rules um, and has all of this like legacy code and client to maintain um, for the validating nodes and for the, the people that are operating in general uh, is probably not the best path forward because uh, we have we'd have legacy maintenance forever and the stuff might not fit into um, whatever rent or state storage fee model that appears in duo um, and so another, viable alternative and kind of my favorite right now is to actually write an EVM interpreter in Wasm, deploy it as a contract, fork the state root of ETH1 into this contract and the Ether balances, um, and then allow uh, interaction with the existing Ethereum 1 state uh, through this contract that exists on a shard uh, by in a stateless way by providing uh, the Merkle witnesses of the state that you're interacting with. Um, this is nice because it allows us to ultimately uh, deprecate maintenance of 1.0. Uh, it allows us to roll it in, but kind of kill, still keep it isolated. And due to this stateless nature, um, it allows us to kind of not have to think about how this integrates into whatever state rent or storage fee model appears in 2.0. So those are the keep 1.0 alive inside of 2.0 options. Um, and then there's, depending on needs and community uh, and also the technical challenges that might arise there, um, other options, and I'm not currently in favor of these, is just let 1.0 run. Um, but to you utilize 2.0 to finalize 1.0, so to essentially allocate a, a bunch of its security to uh, the new proof-of-stake system, uh, and lower mining rewards over time and just kind of let it operate in perpetuity or to maybe have the mining rewards on 1.0 be a function of the amount of ETH that is left 1.0 and like have it naturally kind of moonlight that way. I don't love that option because uh, I think we've made some like strong promises about stuff existing. I think there's some auger contracts about like, will we be at Mars by 2060? Um, and I I don't really like the notion of I'm just letting it die. But again, this kind of, it's a mixture of a technical question and a mixture of uh, what the community wants to see happen on this. So I think we'll, we'll maybe get a chance to speak a little bit more about that as our interview continues. But before we jump into, because I, I think we should actually explain exactly what ETH 2.0 looks like. Before we do that, I would like to hear a little bit of a history of where ETH 2.0 came from when the first spec was proposed. What did it come out of? I know we, I think we touched on it in the sharding episode, but it might be good just to give some backstory here. Right, right. So at the beginning of 2018, there were two parallel research and development efforts for upgrades to existing Ethereum mainnet. 
One was uh, moving to proof of stake, Casper FFG, the friendly finality gadget. And the other was to add sharding via another enshrined, uh, an enshrined contract called the sharding manager contract. Both of these proposals were going to have essentially exceptional, like enshrined contracts in the existing Ethereum state that managed the complexity of the logic of proof of stake and also managing shards. Um, there was a lot of work done on both of these in specking and in, in building out and prototyping. I was working a lot on the CAFs for FFG front, did a lot of work on that contract, uh, wrote the EIP 1011, um, which I know parity was active in implementing and was getting close to becoming a reality. There were some serious limitations on both of these fronts in doing, trying to do this work in the, in the EVM, uh, the most obvious is just kind of the, the rate limiting, specifically just the amount of stuff you can process in the EVM because it's highly inefficient, like trying to process signatures and uh, update state routes in the EVM. It was going to limit the amount of shards and it's going to limit the amount of validators that could participate in either of these systems, um, which ultimately is limiting the scalability and the decentralization of uh, the system by limiting the amount of validators. Probably around May, uh, we were came to a few realizations. One, we're designing a lot of the same stuff in two places by having two kind of foundational games in the system for validators. We actually, we were doing a lot of the same stuff in two places and uh, we might have a strange thing where one game actually competitive competes with the other. Like maybe it's like not a lot of val Maybe it's more viable, uh, more profitable to be a validator in the sharding manager contract. And then you don't have a lot of base security in your uh, Casper contract or vice versa. Um, that plus just hitting roadblocks with the inefficiencies of doing things in the EVM. And there was, I was going to actually have to do a little bit of a rework on the Casper stuff and have to throw some of the formal verification work out the window uh, by doing a little bit of a medium major rewrite of the contract. Um, all of that was pointing us to one, we need to unify these efforts Two, we need to break out of the EVM, uh, which you could reasonably do these things to one Oh, um, and not do them inside the EVM. Uh, but three, given what we know now, given the research and given kind of the trajectory and path of these more, uh, next generation smart contract blockchain application platforms, whatever they are, uh, it was more viable and we were going to get more of what we wanted if we made a more radical decision and uh, architected a, essentially a new system in parallel to the old system and allow the economics and the community of the old system to seed uh, the new proof of stake sharding ETH 2.0. I would say this question getting into this is like the, you have this conversation in every company, in every software project ever. Should I evolve this, you know, piece of shit code base that I've written over the past two years <laughs> and kind of add on the technical debt and keep working on it to make it the thing that I want it to be? Or should I just, you know, kind of leave that there and rewrite it from scratch? Yeah. And no one ever has a good answer to that. Right. Question. And there's always people on either side. Some people love rewriting. Yeah. <laughs> Some yeah. people hate it. And another important thing is that by pulling it out, so we have a we have a plane in flight. I think people use that analogy all the time for 1.0. Um, making radical changes to it to upgrade was going to be very difficult and probably cumbersome and time consuming and, and hard to coordinate. By breaking free and having the system operate in parallel to the existing system, it allows us to move very quickly and unencumbered. So like we can fork and upgrade uh, this new beacon chain, which we can talk about, and the existing shards, um, and just having a very loose link between the two at the beginning, uh, without having to really having coordinate everything on the one O in parallel. Um, so it allows us to move much more swiftly to get to where we want to go. I think that definitely gives us a nice basis to dive into ETH 2.0. Even though there's no visuals, it would be really great if you could just describe the sort of major parts of this architecture and maybe tell us what they do right and i will do my best usually in person i'm like this thing's over here and i'm using my hands and gesticulating a lot so this is this is an exercise for me um okay so we have the existing ethereum chain 
we have a community, we have contracts deployed, we have ether, we have kind of this foundational economic system. This is to seed a new proof of stake chain that lives and exists in parallel to this one O proof of work chain. So in the, in this new system, uh, best to think of the one O chain as kind of the economic seeds, like where the foundational economics are coming from. So in one O, we have a deposit contract where I am sending ether into this contract. Uh, it's essentially a burn on there. I cannot get it back out on the one O from this contract. It emits a receipt, um, with proof of this and some information about me as a validator. And that will then allow me to enter into the beacon chain. The beacon chain is the core system level chain of Ethereum 2.0. Uh, it is where the validators exist. It is where their uh, rewards and penalties happen. It is where they finalize blocks. It is where they bring in information called crosslinks back from the shards into it and link everything together. It's really, uh, it's called, a, it's where a random number generator happens. It's called the beacon chain because it, it kind of sits in the middle and it is a beacon in the sense of a random number beacon. Um, there's probably a lot of other words that would be uh, good descriptors. One kind of visceral is spine, the spine chain. Like it is the center, the spine of the system. I mean, just even calling it the system chain uh, also makes sense in that like, it's where the core system level stuff happens. It's not where user accounts live. It's not where state execution and contracts live. It's, it's not, it doesn't even have a virtual machine. It's more of a state machine. It has like very particular things that it can do and state transitions it can go through. Is this the equivalent of the Polkadot relay chain? If you're yeah comparing the two, yeah, that's, it's, that's that. Um, and it's really in these proof of stake systems, it is really natural to have this place where validators are congregating and where they're performing their duties and told what to do in their duties. Um, in proof of work, you don't really need this because a lot of this, the random number generator and whether how you're a participant or not, that's handled extra protocol. It's like I get this piece of hardware and I start all of that, like all of that complexity that's wrapped up in me getting a piece of hardware and generating all this stuff offline. Like you have to bake into a central place where validators, the participants, not the miners, but the validators um, are congregating and doing all of their work. And so again, it's, it's a really natural design decision, I think, to put that into like one isolated component uh, that then the rest of the system uh, evolves out of. So beacon chain. So we got Proof of work chain to see the economics of ETH2, the beacon chain, which is the core system level chain. You mentioned the validators live in the beacon chain or yes, at the beacon, they hang chain. Out on the beacon chain. So that's where Casper and POS is happening. Yes. Yes. Okay. I mentioned, I mentioned finality. Uh, and by, uh, when I, when I meant, say they finalize things, that's where they do their, the Casper cycle where, uh, they're, voting on recent blocks that they say should be canonical and locked in forever. Um, and when certain thresholds of them do these uh, duties, then they finalize things. Um, and so I think in Casper FFG, you, you justify something and then you finalize it. Um, and so, yeah, the core proof of stake algorithm is happening in there. Outside of the beacon chain is uh, these shard chains. Shard chains are very similar to what you'd think of as Ethereum 1.0, but there are a number of them. Our expectation right now in the, in the um, spec is that there will be 1,024 of them. Uh, these live, there's two ways to think about it. The first is um, kind of like in a tree structure, a hierarchical structure, where the beacon chain sits on top and then it has all these child shard chains as the leaves in the tree. Um, I think that's a nice view. I actually really like thinking of it this is this is uh, going to be tough to describe, but I think I could do it. I like thinking of it in a three-dimensional model. So back to that term I used, uh, the spine. Think of the, the beacon chain as the spine of the system. And the beacon chain is, as the beacon chain is growing, you have all of these shards as a cylinder kind of around it that are growing in parallel with the beacon chain. Uh, like if you looked at a cross section, it's like looking through a tube. Um, but then the validators of the beacon chain, they're sorted onto these shard chains and pulling back references from the beacon chain, like links back into that spine. And that's creating like this, this architecture where everything's really like 
kind of connected together and the way that these shard chains communicate are through those links back into the, the center of this, uh, this body. So that's, that's a, that's a visual. I'll go into a little bit of, of these shard chains. So again, the shard chains have accounts, they have contracts, they have state, they have state execution. Um, and the way the validators at any given time on, on the beacon chain are told which shard chain they need to be validating, which shard chain they need to be building, gathering transactions, building blocks, uh, performing state executions. Um, and at the same time, they're also told a different shard that they're supposed to be cross-linking. And so a crosslink um, in that visual, those are those links back in from a shard chain into the, the core beacon chain. Uh, a crosslink happens every epoch, which is approximately every six minutes, um, where validators are in small, what we call committees. Uh, they go and they make sure that data is available from the shard chain, the recent data, and they pick a reference, like a, a recent block, and pull it back in to the beacon chain. Um, and so by doing that, uh, whenever these crosslinks are made by these committees, um, it pulls in references from the shard chains and unites the shard chains back into the beacon chain and finalize points of the shard chain. Um, so the fork, there's a fork choice rule in the beacon chain, how you find the head of the fork, uh, the beacon chain. And the way that you find the head of a shard chain is actually you go into the beacon chain, you find the head of the beacon chain, and then you find the most recent crosslink. And then you move into the shard chain at that crosslink. It's kind of like the last finalized block from that shard chain, and you walk from there. And so again, everything comes back into that core system level chain. These crosslinks actually serve another role. It's the way that this the beacon chain gets information about recent information about a shard chain. And so in that, it's the way that other shard chains get information about each other. Um, and so at the foundation, you have an asynchronous communication model between the shard chains through this cross-linking mechanism into the beacon chain. I have two questions there. So one is how many cross-links per block can you fit? This is slightly dynamic based on the number of validators, but once you have 4 million ETH validating, the expectation is that you cross-link every shard, every epoch. So I think that's, so an epoch is 64 slots. We haven't talked about slots at all. Uh, but there's a, there, uh, 64 blocks can happen in an epoch and, uh, 1024 shards can be cross-linked in an epoch. So I think that's 16 shards are expected to be cross-linked about per slot. Although they can be staggered, um, in the sense that you might expect, like optimally, you might cross-link this shard at the next, like at, at slot 100, but maybe it comes in at 104 because there were some latency issues on getting uh, these things, these attestations. Yeah, that's another term. So that also means that you can, like, is is cross-linking the main method of, of cross-chain communication? Uh, or is there some other way? And, and if it is, like, that means you can, you can have cross-chain communication every, like, six minutes, like you said. The layer one, so stuff enshrined in the protocol, that is how communications happen is asynchronously through these crosslinks. Um, on ETH research, check out, there's a number of synchronous layer two uh, proposals. And our current path forward, at least for the time being, is to only enshrine an asynchronous model into layer one and to allow the innovation on the synchronous models happen in layer two. One of which, a uh, simple one is like, it's called an encumbrance where I'm my ETH by signing this message and like, say we have a, like I, I have um, my ETH in a encumbrance enabled contract and you also have an encumbrance enabled contract, another shard. I can sign this um, encumbrance where this essentially guarantees to you that you have access to this ETH whenever it does come, whenever the cross link does occur. So then you can take that encumbrance and you can actually you can now encumber your encumbrance by passing on this other signature. Um, and through that, you can get a synchronous, synchronous transfers, uh, across shards. Um, and there's also a number of synchronous state execution, uh, proposals. Again, depending on the particulars of the contract and execution model. Um, but we, due to the, the complexities really explode when you bake synchronous calls into the layer one protocol in that uh, when you have reorgs on one shard, they might like, 
have cascading reorgs across shards. Um, and so all of a sudden you don't really have the isolation and scalability that you expected and you have people like all sorts of dependencies across this. Um, and so the, the design currently again is asynchronous on the, on layer one and innovate on this, the synchronous in layer two. You could also do like, if you're not actually moving ETH around, you could also do a pure like data layer sync, like whether it's synchronous or asynchronous, like a cross chain communication layer two that only deals with data. Yeah. And that would yeah. be pretty easy mm-hmm. actually. So like, as you describe some of this, um, there's definitely some echoes of other projects. I mentioned the, like our, the relay chain kind of example, what do you think, like, what are the projects that you think have influenced a lot of this? I know that Definity has influenced Justin's thinking a lot. That was one of the early papers that he read that was like, oh shit, like there's, there's some crazy stuff here. Um, I think the acknowledgement of the need of, uh, strong randomness built into the, that base protocol, uh, when they came with the, using the, uh, TKG threshold signatures um, really like, I think brought it to the forefront. A lot of projects that that's, that's crucial in proof of stake. You know, I, I definitely keep my eye on polka dot. I am not super <laughs> cued into what's going on over there. I probably should be more. Um, but yeah, I, I think just in general, there's this like emergent space of these next gen blockchains and they're all definitely influencing each other. Uh, I mean, everyone's kind of coalescing on this, this idea that uh, you bring in BLS aggregate signatures, all of a sudden you can have like way more participants in the protocol uh, doing things. And so there, there's a lot of synergy um, being exchanged. And a lot of that's kind of naturally just via conversations and, and conferences and, and things. Is there any, like, do you imagine, I'm, I'm just going to use this as an example, but like something like Cosmos, do you imagine Cosmos as influencing this or would they be used in tandem with this? Like, are, like, how do you imagine something like that working together with ETH 2.0? Maybe it's outside of the spec of what you need to think of right now, but like... Yeah, I mean, uh, the the amount with which interoperability is going to influence this, like all of these systems, I think it's <clears throat> interoperability is inevitable. I think it's very important. Um, I'm not going to make a guess as to whether there's going to be thousands of viable chains or tens of thousands of viable chains or whether it's going to be like three. Um, it... it it really, I think, is going to shake out in the next handful of years as to what happens there. I mean, if you look at some, my, I kind of lean in the direction that there's going to be a power law distribution and that there's going to be a lot, there's going to be a few like heavy players and then like tons and tons of little small players. Um, and so interoperability is important. I would, something that I think a lot about um, with, so, I mean, obviously Polkadot, uh, the key goal is interoperability like how do we connect bitcoin and zcash and ethereum and all make them play nice together with ethereum 2 specifically something i think a lot about is like where does the interoperability live like do we bridge to the beacon chain what can we get out of that like we can get the crosslinks and we can get messages but like if we need to bridge to all of the shards then we're fucked like that's Um, just not gonna happen essentially i'm not i'm not quite sure exactly the interoperability scheme on polkadot and cosmos but the we're talking recently about uh how you can begin to use the there's phases we haven't talked about those but phase one (laughs) Uh, adds the shard chains and just the data consensus on data. And we're beginning to discuss how do you actually reasonably use uh, this data, maybe in ETH one or in somewhere else. Um, and because of the way these crosslinks are formed uh, and because of the way the state root of the beacon chain is formed, you can actually make proofs about everything on the shard chains via the state root of uh of the beacon chain. And so I, I kind of alluded to it. We want to use Ethereum 2 to finalize uh, the 1O chain in the time being and to uh, allocate some of the security to the beacon chain. And in doing that, once we do that, we've required uh, 1O clients to at least be light clients of the beacon chain. And we can expose at that point um, the most recent finalized state route to the EVM, to the virtual machine. And in doing that, now uh, the contracts on 1.0 can make claims about data on 2.0 and use like kind of layer two state execution of that data. Um, 
some interesting things that I think Barry White has working on, uh, this like snark roll up. No, no, not even the roll up. He's working on an entire, uh, like snark, like VM, snarked VM. And in doing that, like he might choose to use consensus on data from, ETH2 and have state execution of uh, resolving these Starks um, in the state in a contract on 1.0. And so, again, I'm, I'm not <clears throat> too cued into the exact particulars of how Polkadot is doing interop, but that state route might become very important. Yeah, it sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, the ideal way to do, um, to make, to build a bridge, at least in the Polkadot world, is to have a parachain that is a like where the runtime of the blockchain is a like client of the other chain. And if you're a like client of the beacon chain and you can get access to proofs of data, then that's that's basically all you need for interop at that point. Yeah. One last thing about sort of the makeup of it. Each shard, is that are they sort of gonna act like unique blockchains? Is this I know, I mean, we did this episode on sharding, and I know that there's different sort of ways of thinking about it, but do you imagine them ever existing as like micro ecosystems and stuff or yes and maybe especially because uh the path we're taking right now is um economic load balancing so you can imagine a sharded system like this that's automatically doing load balancing on the system level and like moving things around and kind of like keeping that away from the 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 user or whatever the framework the user is using um but again this brings up kind of massive complexity into your system level stuff. Uh, and we've opted for going down a path of economic load balancing where the idea is if shard zero is very used, uh, and maybe expensive, I move to shard one, or if some applications that this contract that I need to deploy, uh, exist on shard seven, then I might choose to deploy on shard seven. Um, granted there's this mechanism for, yanking uh where if a contract is enabled to do yanking you can move contracts around between shards um for example maybe uh there's a core token contract uh but my tokens with respect to that token contract are their own contract and because i have ownership over those tokens i might yank them around between uh shards um so yes isolated and in some respect um load balanced through economics and because of that you might imagine uh little microcosms of different activity appear um i i can't claim to know what the emergent behavior might be actually on the system so it'd be very fascinating to maybe analyze year two in so as I said in the beginning, we talked about this on the podcast like six-ish months ago, a long time ago. A lot of things have changed. I think a lot of what's going on in the Twitter sphere and Reddit and everything else right now is like, why are thing, why do things keep changing? In my opinion, mostly from people that don't know software development and so have no idea how to build software. But uh, <laughs> uh, that aside, how has the spec evolved why has it evolved and like how how does that happen for, for i guess the first thing is i'll comment on the uh the twitter conversations this is only i think very recently moving out of a research project it's been it's been transitioning out of a research project and into an engineering project over the past 6 7 months um we released a feature complete um relatively stable version of the beacon chain portion of the spec that a lot of implementation teams are working towards uh, getting implemented and, and towards test nets. Uh, but that said, the research version, the research component of this project and the iterative development of the spec uh, is, is very strange with respect to many software projects because it's happened entirely out in the open. Um, and so every time we're going down a path uh, that become where we learn a lot, and then end up changing things. Uh, this is all very public and under public scrutiny. And Ethereum is very important and very valuable to a lot of people. So obviously there's a lot of conversation that sparks up around that. But to more specifically answer your question, uh, what has changed? And I talked early on in the episode around May or June, we deprecated 
a lot of work. Uh, these, the, the paths towards doing proof of stake and charting and contracts in the existing EVM. And so that was a radical change. Beyond that, I, I, the next, the next couple of months were really like taking many different threads of research and weaving them together into just the basic like structure of a spec and like proving to ourselves that these all, all of these things that we've been thinking about can come together into a viable uh a viable system. Then after that, uh September on till now has been spec writing. Uh taking these research components and like fitting them together into like a sane way for people to implement. Um and we've at first there were probably one or two things that came out that then were like almost radically re-architected, although using the same basic components, uh, in a, in cleaner, tighter, more elegant ways. Um, and then there's been iterative design on the spec since then working through bugs, but also just making things more elegant. Like if we decided to build the spec that came out in October, like it would suck. <laughs> um, it would suck in the sense that like it, it was not an elegant, it was not elegant. It was not, um, the components like weren't fitting all nicely together. There were plenty of bugs. Uh, things were, had terrible names. Like just, we had a lot to think through and a lot that just was going to take this iterative, uh, design. And we've had a lot of implementation teams working on the spec. Um, arguably maybe too many at the beginning. Uh, so early on, maybe in the fall of last year, it was very valuable to have one or two teams on the bleeding edge, like constantly working through things. Um, but I think we, we dragged a lot of teams through this process. Um, now that again, we have this like concrete phase zero, uh, which I will say I'm very proud of. I did not know how much work this was going to take and how long it was going to take when we started. <laughs> um, but now we have it. I, I, believe it is good, uh, palatable, elegant in that, um, now we have all, all these teams that are working on it, have this like very stable target to work towards. Um, and in that now we're beginning the same process on phase one, which I mentioned is the, uh, consensus on the shard chain data and phase two, which is the state execution. Um, so I imagine things are going to be going a lot more smoothly because the implementation and engineering teams have like a very concrete target while we go through this iterative design phase on the other components. I'm trying to put myself a little bit in your shoes and, you know, trying to come up with or working to come up with a spec and having a lot of people weighing in publicly. And at the same time, like needing, you need to have this spec developed in order to actually start having it be engineered. So there's some sort of time frame that you need to finish this thing on. And at the same time, you're in a such a decentralized space. Everyone will have an opinion. Everyone will, some people will want to join who maybe shouldn't be joining. And how do you, I mean, I can just picture the kind of challenge that is because you don't want to be exclusive. You don't want to like tell people that their ideas aren't good. You want to make sure that you're very inclusive, but at the same time, like super fixed decisions need to be made, I imagine. Yeah. How do you balance that? Mild chaos. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's kind of naturally happened in that, um, the Ethereum research team, the foundation research team led by Vitalik, uh, have fostered a lot of these ideas over time on ETH research, which is, which is already kind of this like self-selecting group. It's very, if you go in there, like it's very dense. It's very hard to like jump in and just like give an opinion. Um, and so then when we move to specs, like it begins to open it up a little bit more. Uh, and so you have more engineers that are weighing in. Uh, but then we weren't even, we weren't operating on GitHub at first. We just had this like document that lived. And so it was still kind of isolated. And so we still were able to make like big decisions quickly. Um, and then we moved to GitHub, which is a lot more, um, naturally kind of collaborative environment. And over time we've had, uh, many more teams and many more people weigh in again. It, there's still like, I think there's still like kind of a, a technical barrier of entry in that if you're not very cued into what's going on, uh, it's hard to come in and like give a very strong opinion about something. Um, and so, but the teams that are, that are dedicated and, and digging into these things have begun to give, uh, especially if we've moved out of research and more into an engineering project, give more and more feedback. And this has been excellent in that, you know, we have our own set of expertise, but every team uh, that comes to the table has a different background, a different set of expertise, and has really like 
hardened up the protocol um, and made sure that we're thinking through all these different components. Um, and even now, some of the some of the engineers that are like deep in the weeds on Ethereum one, because there's constantly stuff to do. Um, we've signaled to a lot of those engineers, like, okay, now that we have the stable spec, like, please, um, we've had more insight from them, um, like kind of battle testing some of the ideas that we've, we've laid in foundation there. So again, mild chaos, like there's constantly somebody who has an opinion, um, often great opinions, uh, <laughs> but it's a, it's, it's like a, you know, I, I think it, it's naturally, it been very organic in the sense that uh, we've managed the complexity reasonably and not had too much hangups doing this in the public. Something that I've struggled with myself in working on this and, and like within parity and something that I don't really think that the public really understands is on one hand, I kind of want to wait until there's some version of a spec that we can start working from. And I don't want to have like the rug swept under my feet. On the other hand, I know that as soon as I start working on the spec, I'll have useful things to contribute back that right? will change the spec. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there, there is this back and forth that needs to happen between the spec writers and the implementers. And that's what you're talking about. Like the teams who are actually starting to build this now are starting to provide feedback. And that's why things are changing. So there's two types of changes. It's sort of like Vitalik dreaming up a new idea and like putting that into the spec. But that's not really what's going like what's going on at this stage. At this right, stage, right. it's more like, oh, we sent this to the developer and they highlighted that this thing will actually not work because of this reason and we had to change it. And so it, it, the distinction between these two types of changes is something mm -hmm. that I don't see anyone really talking about. Like they all just think that, oh, someone is fucking around and changing things all the time. Right, right. And. I 100% agree. And I, I think there's been this kind of continuum over the past six months as we've, we've been changing from this research component where, yeah, Vitalik or Justin or who, who knows, like dreams up like, Oh, we should actually be doing this. And then, then you have something change. But, but we, we have entered into this, this engineering, like iterative engineering phase where like experts are saying, Oh, well, actually we should probably optimize it this way. Oh, there's a bug here because if you think about it, this corner case and, and so things, things have entered into a different, a different phase. You're right. Is there any, is there any like example from history and other open source communities where something like this to this, to this extent has been undertaken? Cause it's quite, it's quite a large ecosystem already. And there's a lot of people who are well-versed. Do you know if, I mean, I don't know my Linux history, but like, is there anything <laughs> like that? Yeah, I mean, like Linux is a bad example because Linus decides what goes oh. into it. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, I don't know. I mean, the general. So on the on this latter thing that I'm talking about, where like this is not, well, not really something we've touched on explicitly, maybe, but bike shedding is a thing that happens everywhere, and it's where like instead of discussing like you know where to put up the shed or like how it should be how it should work it's or you're discuss discussing what the paint of the shed should be which doesn't matter uh so right like bike shedding happens a lot in software development in general and especially so in op open source and mm -hmm. uh i can imagine like we've only seen the beginning of bike shedding <laughs> in these two developments uh it right. will there will be more to come for sure right i i think we've talked about i mean serialization formats are very important but we've talked about yeah. serialization formats probably more than anything else on the public yeah. calls. <laughs> that's a typical like bike shedding problem that's the paint yeah maybe it's like the the metal framing <laughs> yeah and i think this this kind of gets me curious on on this like it's like whether it's a research change or an implementation highlight or bike shedding at what point and, and who needs to step in and say, Hey, like this is enough. Uh, you know, we need to stop talking about this. This is final. We're going to go with this and let's move on. Like who, who does that? Great question. And ultimately, obviously the EF does have some sort of like leadership position in the community um, and can make very strong suggestions. At the end of the day, no one has to do it. <laughs> um, and there can be mutiny and people can say, screw you, we're not implementing that version of the protocol. We're going to have red paint instead of black paint. And 
but but that said, there is a strong like cohesive drive. People want to see this come to reality, and so at least in the in the phase zero component of the specs, like I I am becoming more and more resistant to change uh, and getting some pushback. Right, like some teams are like, no, we should change it all. Like we should keep changing it. We should make it better, better, better. Um, whereas you know I'm beginning to err on the side of like, okay, we, we need to like. We need to ship. We need to build this thing. Um, and so I think you're going to see a natural tug of war as people come more and more onto the side of stability. Um, but it's going to be not a battle, but like a little, a little, little mini war. Skirmish. Yeah, skirmish, not a war. Wars are bigger than a battle. Um, I don't know. I might, I might exert some of my power on the calls being like, guys, like we decided this. Let's just be done. Um, but we'll see. No one's, no one's in charge, right? So is there is there some sort of like ETH 2.0 core dev call sort of in the spirit of like what Hudson Yes, yes, yes. We do um we had one this morning. It's called the ETH 2 implementers calls uh that I run and they happen every 2 weeks very similar to the core devs and we have um an increasing overlap between the people on those calls. Uh it's enough of its own effort that we couldn't really have it all in one call. Um, and it's been more of a ragtag group of people kind of experimenting and getting in early on this. And it's becoming more of a formalized thing over time. Um, and I expect at least for the medium term for there to be these two calls in parallel because there's so much to do on both efforts. Um, so yeah, they're on Thursdays as opposed to Fridays. They're currently on the same week. So it's today and then tomorrow. Uh, today's Thursday, the 14th. Um, but sometimes they, they get off depending on, I don't know, scheduling conflicts and stuff. Is there a, is there a Hudson? Are you the Hudson? I might be the Hudson. Um, as in, I run the calls. I think that I'm, I'm more deep in the technical weeds of some of this stuff than Hudson is. Um, and so I, I think I bring a little bit of a different tone in that I'm like explaining a lot of the technical things. Uh, but yes, I, I facilitate kind of the conversation around these calls. And for, for a little context to our listeners, Hudson is the person who runs the sort of general Ethereum core dev call. He's also, we've also recorded a podcast with him where he talked about how he runs these and some of the challenges that come when you're dealing with a very decentralized space and you're trying to make decisions. Yeah. And I've learned a ton from, watching those calls for years and then being a part of those calls, uh, with Hudson. Um, I think he's a, a really awesome figure in the space. I would say that the ETH2 calls and the core dev calls are very different in nature. I mean, it obviously comes from the maturity of the project, but on the, on the core dev calls, it's parody, geth, and some minor clients implementers, like one of each. And it's, I, I don't know, maybe like 15 people ish. The ETH2 calls are like 40 people. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, the discussion is very different in terms of like the core dev calls is like, what are we going to do about this EIP? What does the community think? What are like, it's a lot of this vague discussion about you know, how do we make decisions on what to do? Whereas uh, these two calls are more like, uh, yeah talking concrete like should the serialization format be little or big at endian (laughs) (laughs) um yeah definitely agreed in that it's um less the process is less encumbered by an existing protocol um and that's again one of the reasons that uh we thought it was the most viable strategy to have the eth2 chain be built in parallel so that we can move rapidly um one in, in, in the efforts around coordinating forks and, and two just in, in making decisions like we can, uh, over time formalize the process, um, into reintegrating the EIPs or maybe having EIP twos or whatever, uh, <clears throat> and, and move into the more formal framework. But right now, like have people who are very into the project, like have people that technically want to weigh in and just kind of like move, move quick. You sort of mentioned that early on or like in the fall, you had a lot of people who were looking to build clients or they're working on this more intensely. How many clients are being built right now? Somewhere between like seven and 11. Um, 
<laughs> I think it depends on the week. Uh, and there are many different levels of sophistication there and that there's like some like larger funded teams and then some individuals that are, um, experimenting with some hobby projects. Um, this, there's probably a lot of reasons for this. Uh, one is it's very exciting. Uh, people are excited to get involved, uh, with the future of Ethereum. And two, it's just like, I honestly think that some teams are like, this is, I can make my mark. Like there's a, there's a chance here. There's a lot of open space in Greenfield, uh, to come in and be like a player in this new system. Um, and so it's drawn a lot of different teams, uh, of wide diversity of backgrounds. Um, I think. We had, we had a lot of teams come in very early, very excited. Um, and I, I, I actually, I think I take the blame for that and that I think I sent a little bit too strong public signaling and, and being like, let's do it. Let's build this thing. Uh, again, because uh, I anyone our, can help. Well, no, and, and I, and I want, I mean, I want all hands on deck. Uh, but specifically I recommended to the EF grants team to put a note in the, uh, one of the grants releases, like we're looking for ETH 2.0 implementation teams and like people, people really took that to heart. Um, and a lot of teams have shown up. Um, and, and again, um, I was probably a little bit eager and a little too early in that signaling, um, and have, uh, dragged people through this like very iterative design process where, you know, I think I, uh, one team called Geeth, uh, I think it's just one guy right now, but he, he popped in probably like a month ago when things are really starting to stabilize and like, can like just lay the bones there and doesn't have to like work about worry about, uh, reworking the whole thing three or four times. Um, so again, yeah, lots of teams, lots of excitement. Um, we shall see uh, what becomes viable, what paths forward. The cool thing is, uh, actually, Frederick and I were talking about this um, competition. You know, we're all working towards the same goal, but there's still like this notion of competition between teams, like who's going to get users, who's going to have the viable client first, who's going to um, build the API that uh, people are going to want to plug into, who's going to build like a really nice validator interface with like backup technology or connect, connect to multiple nodes and all this stuff. Like it's not, it's not in the spec. This is all stuff that's like on the outside of the spec that really makes a client unique. Like what language did you pick? What, what tools are you providing? What interface do you have? Um, and so yes, there's a lot of communication and coordination effort on having a lot of these teams involved. Like this morning we had our call and like, I was like, okay, today client updates, let's keep them quick. Cause we have a lot of y'all here. Um, but Ideally, I, we see a lot of like competition and a lot of innovation because we have so many people involved. That's a really, that's an amazing observation that there's these teams competing in that way. You've gamified it somehow. <laughs> Everything's a game. <laughs> so it also, uh, it was interesting to see Vitalik handing out a couple thousand ether on Twitter <laughs> to the various teams. Oh my god! It, it might have helped in bringing in more people to. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I want to participate in that. I want my I want my airdrop. Do you think? So I had the question if there's any sort of EIP process for ETH 2.0, but it sounds like it's a little early for something like that. But do you think that that could be a way to funnel some of that energy? Yes, and I've Maybe actually changing it from an EIP to something more exciting where there's prizes. I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe so. I mean, uh, we have uh, a lot of chance to learn from, you know, take the good and fix the bad from both the technical perspective, but also like the community organization perspective. And so, yes, I think I think that's going to be a, a really valuable. Uh, conversation to have over the next many months uh maybe bringing up at some of these magician forums it's like okay this is our current process um for eips um how might we uh make this better how might we re-architect it um i i haven't thought about this too much and how you might change the eip process and nor am i necessarily advocating for it um, cause that might just be a can of worms, <laughs> but, uh, there is an opportunity to make some changes here. Um, and we shall maybe see. instead, I mean, I, I think I can imagine also like maybe bounties. Oh yeah. 
uh, uh, bounties have actually been really successful, uh, for a lot of these client teams already. Uh, Gitcoin is super awesome. I'm a huge fan. Um, a lot of teams I know have done some early bounties, um, and actually found like regular contributors, found hires and stuff. Um, I'm, I'm super stoked about bounties in the space in general. And I think a, a really cool thing that a lot of the, um, 2.0 teams have taken to heart is this idea of fostering a, a community and a repo that uh, enables the community to be engaged. We've seen it, like a, a ton of outside engagement um, and like just random people popping in. Whereas depending on how you architect your, uh, your GitHub project or whatever your, your repo is um, you can either like make it really welcoming or you can make it like totally impossible to come in. Um, so I think we, we've done a really good job there. So to wrap it up, I think we need to do that at some point, even <laughs> though it's an interesting topic. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the future and something that irks me and something that people ask me all the time is like, what's the timeline? When, do, when ETH 2.0? And it's such a, like, it, no one can answer it. No one knows. So I would rather talk like concretely shorter term future, um, what do you hope will happen in 2019? Like, what do you hope that we can ship? What, what process changes would you hope for? Or like what decision-making will happen over the next year? So I fully expect in the next month or two to begin to see viable beacon chain clients, um, targeting certain versions of the spec and communicating, uh, first just test nets with their own client and then second with uh, test nets, uh, interoperability, ensure client test nets, um, beginning to be short-lived, and then uh, further down the line, um, having some of these like long-lived test nets where we can battle test things, have some adversaries come in and try to break stuff. Um, I'm kind of I've been following the um, Cosmos game of stakes, uh, so maybe we'll do something like that. Well, we can have these like. Uh, medium like you know month-long test nets where we have players come in and try to like collude and break and and uh, do some interesting things in the networks um i do and i'm hesitant to say this but i do i do i'm not hesitant uh i just i'm sure somebody's gonna quote me on this but i yeah i i expect to launch the beacon chain in 2019 um the complexity of phase one which is the shard data chains um, is not actually that massive on top of uh, the beacon chain. Um, so I don't expect the timing between those two events, the launching of phase zero and the launching of phase one, uh, to be too long. Um, and we are beginning to work. Uh, I expect the phase two spec to certainly be um, becoming, moving towards concrete definitely within 2019. Uh, we're moving on a lot of these things in parallel now, now that the engineering effort has begun on the phase zero stuff, um, we're beginning to uh, do the necessary work to put all the state stuff together for phase two, we're working a lot with the EWASM team now. Um, so again, I expect to see some serious movement this year. Um, I think one thing that's important to note is uh, ETH2, some people just want to see ETH2 like done. Um, but I think it's important to note that there is a, there's a lot to gain at each phase and each iteration. Uh, phase zero being that uh, we can begin to um, finalize ETH1 and uh, people might then advocate for uh, reduced issuance. So it seems like the community is very into that kind of thing. Um, with phase one, with the shard data chains, um, we can then begin to do all sorts of interesting layer two state execution, uh, work. There's a lot of interesting ideas on that on, um, ETH research. I mentioned a few at the beginning of the podcast, how you might actually use the ETH2 data, uh, consensus for state execution within ETH1. And then obviously the end goal with state execution in phase two. Um, but again, but again, like iterative, like we get, we have concrete gains at each of these phases. Yeah, that was actually a point that I that I thought we might want to just revisit quickly. When you're talking about these, this excitement and this energy about ETH 2.0, and a bunch of people jumping in, and sounds like 
it's almost like a new generation's coming in trying to make their mark. You still sort of need to, and I know it's not really maybe your group that has to, but in general as an ecosystem, people still have to folk, they have to remember that ETH 1.x is still there and that there might need to be some, I don't know, some check-in points. Yes, absolutely. And, and, um, the dialogue is less and less disparate, um, and that there's increasingly people that are part of both sides of the conversation. Um, there are people who distinctly are going to put a lot of effort into the one X or two O or vice versa. Um, but these things are not happening entirely in isolation anymore. Um, and unifying the minds on these, uh, is, is definitely a priority and definitely something that's happening more and more. Um, ideally anything that happens on the one X front, um, especially with respect to storage fees, um, can, it can inform 2.0. Um, ideally like some of the things happening there are, are, uh, directly related to some of the work we're doing in 2.0. One thing that I think is important and that, that I've talked about in various places is setting realistic expectations and like you said, with all the excitement, everyone is asking for this or that, or ETH 1.x is happening. And like you said in the beginning as well, like ETH, ETH, the problem with 1.x is now it's this package of things that people expect and not all of it is going to happen very likely. So I think managing expectations as a whole is pretty difficult, but specifically as we've seen over you know the past with 2.0 is... At first, it was Casper and Proof of Stake on the main net, and then that was strong. Like we've we've pushed the what's what's the expression? Push the goalposts <laughs> or move the goalposts yeah, yeah. several times. Um, and yeah, from an outside perspective, it it's disappointing and it's like disillusioning when things keep moving. But it's internally, it's not really moving. It's not that we're like just fucking around and pushing things out or like delaying things in terms of like we can't get it done. It's you know, things are changing, changing and iterating and evolving. So how do you manage expectations in an, envi an environment like this where people are looking forward to something and you, you like... You want to say, yeah, let's ship a beacon chain by 2019, but you can't really, yeah, because no, yeah. you know, don't know that it's yeah, gonna don't, happen. Don't quote me and on that. Even yeah. <laughs> so, so, so when when it like when it gets there and it doesn't happen, then there's good reasons for it, but it's still like, oh, but you said, and then everyone is like disappointed. Yeah, I think um, in general, uh, upping the communication and resources is something that we're definitely interested in doing from the EF side and that we've been encouraging all the 2.0 clients to do and not just update, uh, you know, we implemented X, we, we did Y, uh, but to give a more open dialogue about the process and what's happening. Um, and we, we attempt to do that obviously with these 2.0 calls, but they're, they're long and they're dense. Um, so providing more, providing more resources and just reiterating, like, none of this shit's ever been done. Like we're making stuff that's never been made before. Like we're, we're pushing the limits on P2P networking. We're pushing the limits on game theory. We're pushing the limits on economics. Like it's super, super exciting. And I know that a lot of people have a lot invested both financially and just kind of like personally and mentally, like people are really into this stuff. Um, and so like we're doing our best. And we're working our asses off and tons of people in the community are working our asses off. Um, and I, I encourage you, if you want to be involved, you can, um, in the sense that like go read through, read through a paper that you find interesting and fix correction, like correct typos, like work on documentation, work on local community engagement. Like there's so much to do. Um, <clears throat> jump in and be a part of it. And as you, become more a part of it you'll actually you'll be more clued into the reasoning and the reasons and and uh, the kind of the realistic nature of building these things cool well i think on that note uh we want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast yeah thanks for having me i had a blast so i guess everyone should keep their eye out on a few sites should they what are the sites that people should be looking at to to keep up to date on this yeah it depends on your level of 
how technically deep you want to get into this stuff. Um, some of the conversations on the bleeding edge of what might you expect in the phase two stuff uh, is happening on ETH research. Um, a lot is happening on the ETH 2.0 specs repo. Um, if you are interested in reading the spec now is actually a really good time of the phase zero spec because we've cut like relatively stable releases beyond that. I, again, a lot of these, a lot of the implementation teams are putting out like every two weeks or every month updates. So that's a good, a good way to get clued in. And I know specifically a few of the teams are working on some, uh, some demos and simulations and stuff that you can run on your computer. Uh, and I expect over the next two to four weeks to have a few of those floating around. Um, so follow some of those teams on Twitter, like Lighthouse, Nimbus, Pegasus. Oh man, there's a million, but, uh, <laughs> fo- follow them. Uh, they have some cool resources and, and again, like get your hands dirty. Like, uh, we we're excited to have people, uh, playing with some of this stuff, um, probably in, within March. Very cool. Well, thanks again. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.